Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with Dr. Benjamin Hepp. And in your office here at the Graduate Center, actually, we're only a few feet away from multiple-time podcast guest Jim Oaks. Thank you for hosting me. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be with you. And I'm going to share with what brought me to you and then what I want to talk about, but then I think we have to talk about your book because it's regular listeners know that I, I look a lot to learn what it was like for people who watched it happen and could have done something different because we're, it feels like we're, okay, I work a lot on sustainability and it feels like we're sleepwalking into this big mess. And so Jim studied the studies on American history leading up to the Civil War and people watched it happen. And I was very curious, and it, like I feel like sticking my head into the lion's mouth of, you know, you're not supposed to compare things to slavery and to the Holocaust because nothing's as bad as those things. But, and yet we went through those things and the body count for unsustainability is very high. It's like something like 9 million per year die from breathing polluted air. So I was very curious, what was it like for a typical German living in Germany in the 30s and even into the 40s, not a Nazi. Someone they, they would have lived through World War I. They would have lived through all the reparations and all these things that you write about in your book. And I was really very curious about that. And so I wanted to learn, are there troves of letters from one person to another, from heads of businesses or organizations talking about watching what's happening? And it kept, brought me to your book, which was fascinating. So the death of democracy, and it talks about Hitler's rise to power. And I think we have to put my stuff that I want to get to second, <laughs> because this book is is one is fascinating. Two, I'm very curious to what brought you to it, because you weren't always a historian, if I if I've heard right from other podcasts. That's correct. I'm a lapsed lawyer. <laughs> and then also. There's been a lot written about Hitler in Germany and the Weimar Republic, and and you have new stuff that's never been around before. So I wonder. I think the best place to start was is maybe your background. What brought you to writing this book, and how this book is new? It has stuff that you know even scholars of the field there's new stuff for them. Sure. Well, thanks, Josh. Well, I guess I would say my career and almost all the work I have done has been a whole sort of series of accidents of coming across things by chance. Uh, coming out of college, uh, I grew up mostly in Canada. Coming out of college, I set out to be a lawyer and I went to law school and I was a lawyer for a while and I really, really hated it. <laughs> Sorry, I hated it. I, was, I, was, I went to the wrong kind of practice. I was really kind of personally set up to do criminal defense. That's what I was interested in. But I Went and worked at a big corporate law firm, and everything about it bored me to tears. And nonetheless, I worked there for four years thinking what else I could do. And eventually, I realized that what I really had a passion for was history. And I was, insofar as I had spare time as a lawyer, I read books about 20th century history, world wars, and that kind of thing. And eventually, I went back to school, and I did a graduate degree, and I uh, became a professor, and, and here I am. But when I went back to school, there were accidents, too, because I thought I would study 20th century British history. And then kind of by chance, I took a course to fill up my schedule on um, uh, Bismarckian Germany. And I thought, taking that course, I thought, oh my God, this is so interesting because in German history, everything kind of went wrong. I mean, German, modern German history, at least 19th and 20th century history, is kind of a story of the train going off the rails every time. And, you know, there's that saying, a plane that doesn't crash doesn't make the news. 
But a plane that crashes is an interesting plane, kind of inherently. And that made German history to me really interesting. So then I had to kind of rush and struggle to learn the language at an age that was kind of too late to be learning a fairly difficult language like German, but somehow I managed it and started doing research. And then to come sort of directly to your point, I, I then spent a number of years, about a decade and a half, um, researching basically five years or six years or so of German history, the late 1920s into the early 1930s, the period in which the Weimar Republic is going down the drain, the Nazis are rising. I wrote a book about uh, an amazing lawyer named Hans Litten, uh, who was a absolutely insanely admirable, I can't say enough about it, incredibly courageous young man. He used his legal practice to try and stop the Nazis and sacrificed himself to the effort to do that. And I spent a lot of time researching his life and the paper trail. And he was arrested on a very particular night. He was arrested on the night of the Reichstag fire on the 27th of February, 1933, when a lot of anti-Nazis were arrested in Germany in the wake of this controversial event, the Reichstag fire. And there is this whole controversy about who set the fire. Like, did the Nazis do it themselves to create a pretext to crack down on opponents, or did it happen by chance? And the Nazis kind of improvised. And I was trying to research why Lyndon was arrested that night, what the history of the arrest lists were, who put them together. And I realized that that controversy was kind of embedded in the whole controversy over who set the Reichstag anyway, uh, Reichstag fire anyway. And so once I was finished with the Hans Lyndon book, I got kind of interested in the whole Reichstag fire controversy. So then I wrote a book on the burning of the Reichstag and what the evidence is for who did it. And I wrote a lot about the controversy over it. And so I spent a few more years on that. And then my Reichstag Fire book came out in 2014 in English. And then there was a, a German translation. And I worked a lot on the German translation. Uh, the German edition is kind of almost a second edition because I found some more evidence in the meantime. And I had corrected a few minor errors from the first book. And that came out in 2016. And then, so by that point, I had been working on these five years of German history for about 15 years. And I thought, I'm going on and I'm doing something totally different now. Mm -hmm. And then, at the risk of getting into comparisons, and then Donald Trump was elected, of course, late in 2016, and suddenly everybody is interested in comparisons between, you know, Nazis and Trump followers, decline of democracy, etc. And so the weird thing is, somebody like me, who's had this kind of quirky, nerdy obsession with the end of the Weimar Republic for years, which basically no normal person cared about before 2016. Suddenly, that's kind of hot knowledge, and suddenly people are interested in it. So I was asked to write a book which would be a kind of accessible, fairly short book for a non-academic audience on just the process by which the Nazis came to power, and democracy went down the drain in Germany in the 20s and 30s, with an eye to what parallels there might be for our time, but not in any way making it explicit. And so that's the book that you asked me about, The Death of Democracy, which came out in 2018, which is kind of a product of my, you know, decade and a half of researching these five years of history, in the course of which I did come across some things which previous historians had not found. And that filtered through some of the experiences of you know, 2016, 2017, 2018, and looking at the state of the world now and thinking about what lessons there might be from the era of the rise of the Nazis to our time and place. So you're describing five years. And from the book, there's a couple of takeaways. I mean, it seemed like a huge, I guess you can't talk about that period without talking about World War One, And it seemed to me the, the August 1914 to November 1918 
the differences in the perspective, the lies that were told to self-serving, yeah, that that set the tone as well as this constitution that was like a great looked to be a great constitution and a culture that looked to be a tremendous culture. And that seems before that. I guess that sets up those five years. Yeah, that's right. I, I guess I should say with the five years, that's sort of what my personal research focus has tended to be, and it's sort of the center of gravity of the book, The Death of Democracy. But certainly, there are important things that happened before that that I do talk about in the book. And you're absolutely right. World War One. It's hard to exaggerate the importance of how World War One sets up what follows. I think I say in the book something like, "The answer to every question about." You know, the years of the Weimar Republic in Germany, the answer to every question is probably something about World War One, And particularly, as you were alluding to, the way World War One began and ended, because those were things that imprinted themselves in the minds of Germans. The war began, uh, Germans often talk about, you know, the mood of 1914 or the ideas of 1914. It begins with this kind of real patriotic uprising and sort of feeling of national unity, because Germans perceive themselves to be under attack from enemies on all sides, Russia um, to the east, France and Britain to the sort of west and north. And that feeling of being under attack makes them feel a tremendous national solidarity. And so there's there's this brief moment where a lot of really bitter divisions in German society between regions, between social classes, between religious groupings, between political parties, they're sort of melted away. It's very similar, I think, for Americans. It's very similar to a lot of the feeling after 9-11, where there was, there was a little bit of that, you know, external threat makes... Internal divisions melt away, at least for a little while, never for very long. But that was happening in Germany. And so Germans remembered that. They, they come away with this image of this one moment when we were unified. Then when the war ends, November 1918, Germany, of course, is beaten. It surrenders. There is a revolution and a regime change towards a more democratic system. But not accidentally, and writers have stressed this point, people who were around then have stressed the point, in November, it's cold and gray and rainy. It's not like August in 1914 when the war broke out when it's sunny and warm and beautiful and hot. So these images also kind of print themselves into the minds of Germans. So when the war ends, you have a mix of things. You have defeat, you have revolution, you have regime change, you have a feeling of national humiliation, and you have lousy weather, all kind of merging to create a real sort of downer feeling about the end of the war. And so the new democracy that's born in that moment sort of comes into being already with a sort of heavy mortgage on it that it's sort of born out of this somewhat downer feeling. And to touch on something else you said, which wouldn't have been in my mind so much when I wrote the book, because I wrote the book before the 2020 election and, and January 6, 2021, when suddenly the big lie is a thing that Americans talk about. Well, there's a big lie coming out of World War One for Germans, and that is that very soon after the war ended, the military high command starts putting out this idea that the German army wasn't actually beaten, that the German army was about to win the war. Uh, Germany was betrayed by civilian politicians at home, democratic politicians, socialists, and very particularly Jews, that the argument was they had stabbed Germany in the back and then signed a shameful and highly oppressive peace treaty. And the path to a better future for Germany was to rise up against these traitors from within and try and overcome the defeat and humiliation of the war. And, you know, this is a lie from beginning to end. The people who put the story out knew it was a lie. The military commanders actually understood perfectly well they had been militarily beaten. But it was not convenient for them. For them personally, right? For them personally. Yeah, right. Because the defeat's kind of their responsibility in considerable part. So 
for their own future and for the future of the kind of military institution and the politics they favor, it is much more convenient to say, well, we actually were winning. It's those democratic and Jewish politicians who betrayed us. And that's the German big lie. And it also, I never picked up on this. It, I mean, all the fighting was outside Germany. Yeah. So from the, and whatever news was coming in was being filtered. Yeah. So from the Germans' perspective, if we're over there, we're winning. If they're saying we're winning, we're winning. And now suddenly we lost. It fit. Yeah. I mean, it's not hard to see why the that big lie would take hold with Germans at the time. Because, you know, precisely as you're saying, when the war ended, the German army was in France and Belgium in the West. It was occupying, it had beaten the Russians and was occupying huge chunks of what is today, especially Ukraine and Belarus and the Baltic states. And, you know, in World War One, bombing technology hadn't become what it had become in World War Two. So there's absolutely nothing tangible for Germans to point to a defeat. It does look like they're winning. And then suddenly they're being told, after years of propaganda, telling them, we're winning, we're winning, we're winning, we're winning. Then all of a sudden, oh, we lost, we surrendered, that's it. So it is hard to understand. And the, the military commanders who put out the big lie could very successfully play on that. It does feel, another thing I, I look at a lot is the feeling when, if I do something, I believe I'm a good person. If I do something in today's world, if I pollute a lot, and people are suffering from that pollution, I, I want to deny. I don't want to. My mind will deny. Right. I'm good, but I'm doing something I think is bad. Right. So how do I resolve this? Right. And that's a big, that's what the ruling race is. It covers a lot. And I think, I feel like, so these German leaders who had just lost, I want to empathize with people that I disagree with so that I can understand where they're coming from. And I can see, like, they probably, they, they, they weren't like, let's set up this what it led to. There was, uh, it's not quite my hands in the cookie jar, but I messed up really bad and I don't want to look bad. Yeah. You know, people are complicated. I know that that sounds like a dumb thing to say. And yet it's, it's sometimes it's harder to, um, it's harder to sort of operationalize that way, especially when you're thinking about people you find kind of repugnant. And, you know, as a historian, I think like quite honestly, I mean, I think you're, you're on the right path there. As a historian, you have to try to think your way into the minds of people you probably find repugnant in some degree because you have to try to understand them. You have to try to, even someone as absolutely definitively repugnant as Hitler, as a historian, you have to try to understand what's going on in that guy's mind a little bit. Otherwise, where are you? What can you learn that is actually useful? Like what evidence can you bring forward that will actually aid your understanding? You, History is you know, sometimes an unpleasant business, usually an unpleasant business of dealing with trying to understand really repugnant people. All right, so I have a list of questions here. I'm like, wait on the list is, <laughs> have you tried getting into Hitler's mind? And I want to, so when I, um, I teach leadership and I teach it's very important to empathize to, if you want to lead someone, it, it's very important and it's very helpful to know what motivates them. Right. People generally protect their most deep motivations because those are also their greatest vulnerabilities. Yes. And especially when someone you disagree with or have a conflict with, that, that's the people it's most important to understand them the best. And then I often say, imagine World War II, you're a general and you're fighting Hitler. You have to get into Hitler's head or at least have a team of people that do that. Yes. There's like, I can't think of many people that you'd want to do that less with, but what do you do if you're, if you're defending the free world? Yes. And if they could do it, we can do it. And generally, we're not going to be dealing with Hitler's. That said- your book talks. Your book goes into a lot of the machinations between the politicians and the business people, and 
how they're going to get control and and Hindenburg and then Hitler is every night like he pops up and doing things that are effective for himself. And I didn't see if you really dug into I mean you mentioned Mein Kampf you mentioned his he, he had I, so he had friends who were Jews. He had friends who were he was an artist. Yep. And did you delve into like what the world looked like from his perspective and did you like for me when I think about people polluting like I'm, I'm falling asleep at night I'm trying to put myself in their mindsets it's like really uncomfortable to think of someone who like litters who just like eats a candy bar and then just drops the litter on the ground yeah that's nothing compared to Hitler and then also the brown shirt it's like are, are they having fun are they just having a good time are they and I mean, what I really want to get to is the people who we are most like, who are like the the tax paying Germans, watching it happen. But I, I guess I I got to ask you: Have you tried getting to the Hitler, mind of Hitler? I mean, I guess the answer to that is yes. I think I feel that I have done that with much less success than I, I feel I have in some ways gotten into the minds of almost everybody else around him. I mean, there are. This sounds weird to say, I guess, but I, there are other top Nazis who, in a certain sense, I find more relatable than Hitler. Hitler, Goebbels, I bet. Well, Goebbels, yes, as yeah. a matter of fact, yes, because Goebbels, and again, I hope your listeners will not take this the wrong way, because Goebbels was a thoroughly repugnant person as well. But I will say that, you know, I spent a lot of time reading Goebbels' diaries, and I do sort of feel like, in some ways, Goebbels came from the same world that I do. And I, I've often had the feeling, especially reading his diaries as a young man, I went to college with this guy. We all went to college with this guy. We all went to college with this guy who's, who's really smart. And he's a little bit of an oddball, but he's really smart. And like, you know, most young men in college, he's got about 90% of his mind on young women. And the rest of it is on what he might do with his life. And he's got this sort of frustrated ambition. And he's he's gotten into his studies and he's reading. And he would probably come to you one day and he's been reading, I don't know, Novalis or some great German writer. And he like, I knew this guy mm-hmm. in college, you know, and so... There's a certain sense in which I find, I sort of feel like I get him in a way that I don't get Hitler. Hitler's just too different. I mean, I try to think about this. And there are, there are certain things about Hitler that I think I do understand. And one of the weirdest things about Hitler, and actually sort of on point for this, Hitler himself seems to have had an extraordinary capacity to read and understand people, which is a little weird from a guy who was most of the time very cut off from people around him. He didn't have a lot of close personal relationships. And yet somehow, People who knew him have spoken about how one of his associates used the analogy of kind of radar, that he would sort of send out radar to people and he could sort of read you pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And then he would sort of figure out what he could say to you that would make you like him or be impressed by him. And he was very, very good at that. And you see this over and over again. You see how he was able to manipulate, you know, other German politicians and, and powerful people who could open doors to him. And then when he's himself in power, he's able to play this game with, you know, Western democratic statesmen, some of them very tough and savvy and experienced, and yet they get taken in by him because he has this incredible skill at both reading people and manipulating people. So that bit of Hitler, I feel I get, sort of getting into his mind, I guess I run up against my limits there a little bit. Yeah, it's... All right, let's leave that for another time because that's... It's curious to me, but I really want to get to... Well, I guess also... People thought they could contain him or control him, use him for his, or the Nazis, I guess, in general. And I keep having to remind myself, in the 30s, the Nazis were not the Nazis of the 40s. Yes. So they don't know, like, 
it's weird to like they would see Hitler and not see well, that's an interesting pun and not see the uh, the guy that we see. Well, sure, that's actually a super important point, which I think people far too often forget. There was a great historian named Frederick Mayland who said once, the thing about history we have to remember is that events now far in the past were once far in the future. And again, that's one of those things that sounds really sort of blindingly stupid and obvious, and yet to sort of put that into practice is much harder because World War II and the Holocaust are so ingrained in our minds. Like that is very much a part of our mental furniture. We know what a genocide is because the word genocide was coined, you know, in the early 40s as the Holocaust was happening. But, you know, so think about that. When Hitler comes to power, that word doesn't even exist, right? That tells you something. There just isn't, there isn't a template for everything Hitler is doing. People haven't seen this movie. No one's seen this movie. There has not been a genocide like the Holocaust. I mean, there are sort of precursors and analogs, but nothing quite like the Holocaust. And there really hasn't been a regime like Hitler's either. I mean, modern technology, modern communications uh, technologies, all kinds of things made possible a degree of oppression, a sort of degree of comprehensive political oppression that was not possible in any previous, even authoritarian regime. So yeah, people have no idea what they're looking at with Hitler. Plus, there's a very familiar political phenomenon that people who are radicals when they're in opposition, if they get governmental power, they suddenly sober up and they think, oh my God, I've got to do this job now. So I've got to like do this properly. And there, there are gazillion precedents for this. There was a very recent one for Germans. The Social Democrats, before World War I, had been an avowedly radical Marxist revolutionary party. In practice, they had um, diverted from radical revolutionary Marxism for at least a couple decades before World War I, and they had in practice become a kind of moderate reformist democratic party. But they didn't sort of admit that, and their rhetoric was still a revolutionary and Marxist, and yet they come into a substantial amount of power in Germany after World War I. They lead the national government for some of those years, and they become absolutely sort of responsible, boring, kind of orthodox, just sort of moderate center-left politicians. So people look at them, and they say, well, look, the Social Democrats were fire-breathing radicals, and now look how boring and stable they are. So, you know, this is always what happens in politics. It'll be the same with Hitler. Sure, he talks a lot of crazy stuff now, but put him in power, he'll be fine. That, that's what a lot of people think. And honestly, it's not crazy to think that uh, before 1933 or even before, I don't know, 1938, 1939. I mean, it, it does take, as you've said, it takes Hitler a while to get to be the Hitler that we think of. Can you also talk about the uh, Berlin in the 20s and 30s? Sure. And I guess the contrast between Berlin and so Weimar, am I saying that right? Is it, that's a city. Actually, Weimar, Lai. Okay, so Weimar, that's a, that's a city. Is that where the Reichstag was? No, that was where the national parliament met to draft the constitution in the first half of 1919 because there was too much political instability in Berlin. But once they drafted the constitution, they went back to Berlin, and Berlin was the capital. So it just kind of started, it, it, it held the name, even though that was a minor player. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So what's it like in Berlin? What's it like everywhere else? And and do they have reason to feel like, I mean, German history? I mean, you talked about the planes crashing, but we got Goethe and, and Bach, and and I mean Einstein. Yeah. It's uh, so the plane doesn't the plane's flying high too. <laughs> is there reason to believe it's a great plane that crashes? Yeah. Is is there reason to believe like the these institutions will hold? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, Germans uh, have traditionally liked to call themselves uh, or to call their country the land of poets and thinkers and a fair bit of justice to that. If you look at the German literary tradition, musical tradition, scientific tradition, and there's 
in the years of the Weimar Republic, there's a, a kind of climax and high point of that. And the climax and high point is really centered in Berlin. Um, Berlin in the 20s is one of those times and places that come up sometimes in human history. Uh, Vienna, I think, uh, 20 or 30 years before that was like that. New York, maybe in the 40s and 50s. These moments where there's like an incredible concentration of creative energy of all kinds in one place. And that was Berlin in the 20s. In all kinds of ways, there was incredible groundbreaking art being made, films. If you think of like the German cinema of the 20s, like they're doing some of the most interesting, innovative things like Fritz Lang, people like that, Metropolis. Uh, you mentioned Einstein. They're on the Germany is on the cutting edge of physics and chemistry in particular. I was told once that back then, all the physics journals in the world, about 30-odd percent of them were published in German, um, which is an indication of just how important German science was. In, in things like architecture, you've got the Bauhaus school and industrial design doing innovative things that still kind of define the physical world that we live in. And social movements. You know, there's a really active feminist movement. Uh, one thing that I think a lot of people might find counterintuitive is that Germany, and even before the 20s, Germany had had the biggest, uh, best organized, most effective gay rights movement. And they're really on pioneering territory with that. So Berlin is a really liberal in some ways, really radical, creatively energetic place, politically very much a left of center city. The Social Democrats and the farther left Communist Party really politically dominate Berlin in the 20s and early 30s. Between them, they always get a majority of the votes in every election. The Nazis called it Red Berlin as a sort of tribute to how politically left of center Berlin was. And Berliners as a people have always been, one thing I, I kind of find fascinating about Berlin Berlin has always, throughout almost all of its history, been a kind of liberal city, often stuck as the capital of an authoritarian country uh, in various iterations of Germany. And that has bred a certain attitude among Berliners. Berliners are actually a lot like New Yorkers in that they are kind of tough and sarcastic and quick-witted, and they have a very distinctive accent, which in some weird way to me sounds kind of like a New York accent would sound in German. Like the Berlin accent is a kind of tough urban accent, like a, you know, like a Brooklyn accent or something. And Berliners are very distinctive for that. So there's this very kind of kind of small D democratic, anti-authoritarian vibe to Berlin, along with, you know, very liberal or socialist politics and the whole sort of cultural ferment of, of that era. Now, our images of the Weimar Republic tend to be very much images of Berlin. Like if you're a fan, as I am of the show um, Babylon Berlin or a, countless other, you know, sort of cultural takes on the Germany of that time, we all tend to be very Berlin focused on it. And the reality is there were a bit over 60 million Germans at that time and about 4 million of them lived in Berlin. So there's a whole lot of Germans who are not living that life and, and who are much more conservative and they're living in much more conservative environments, and we tend not to think of them so much. But Berlin was a really remarkable place, and because it was the capital, because it was the biggest city, and because of how it was culturally, it was the target for the right. I mean, to the political right in Germany would basically explain themselves as being, we're against Berlin. Like, Berlin is everything that we hate. So there was the polarization. Was it only Berlin? Because here we have, we tend to think of the coasts. I mean, you mentioned New York, but there's San Francisco. And, and then in the middle of Texas, there's Austin. Yeah. Was there other Berlin-like things there? Or was it just Berlin? Yeah, you would find similar things in the other big cities. Hamburg, uh, also a very left-leaning and port city in that case. Germany kind of doesn't have coasts really the way we do. But, but in the bigger cities, you would find a bit of that. But in no 
place was it quite as concentrated and in no place did a city have the kind of political salience of Berlin. You don't really hear German right-wingers complaining rhetorically too much about Hamburg or Frankfurt. It's Berlin that they hate. And of course, it's the capital gives it an extra... It's sort of like in America, if you had a combination of New York and Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. and various kinds of Americans for various reasons hate both of those cities, if you piled them into one, that would be a lot of hatred going to that place. And that's kind of what Berlin was. It's viewed as elitist and not Absolutely. understanding us and... yeah. Elitist, looking down on the countryside. You know, uh, Weimar Germany had something very close to a kind of red state, blue state divide. I mean, there's a real feeling that, you know, cons- uh, like real Germany, you know, conservative, kind of more rural, you know, kind of everyday Joe Germany is in the countryside. And Berlin is something else. It's not really German. It's, you know, some horrible, like, foreign implant with all of these crazy social and artistic ideas. Could each side have made some forays to understand the other more, like not to polarize so much? I mean, that obviously sure. I'm about today as well. Sure. And people could have been nicer to their kids and eaten more vegetables. But, you know, human beings often, often enough don't do that for various reasons. You know, a lot of politicians, if you're a conservative politician, your interest is being served by having the target of Berlin just as some of our politicians have an interest served by targeting or demonizing, you know, certain groups that they find it convenient to demonize, Berlin fills that function. And pretty much the same going the other way. If you're, you know, a, a, say, left-leading Berlin politician, you're going to keep your voters in line by demonizing the, you know, conservative rubes in the country. Mm -hmm. So they didn't have Twitter and, and so forth. Media must have played a role. I mean, media is changing quickly. Yeah. Oh, and Hitler was really taking advantage of, of I guess, radio and airplanes. Yeah. 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 I mean, this was, um, the, you know, there was there were things going on in the 20s and 30s, which in some ways look a lot like the information revolution that we've gone through in our time. There was an incredible expansion of print media, which was basically driven by uh, technology, which made it cheaper, and mass education, which meant people could read. And Germany in general, and Berlin in particular, had an incredibly lively uh, print media spectrum. And then there's newer technologies like radio is becoming a big deal in the 20s and 30s. And the Nazis were very tech forward in figuring out how to use radio and use it more successfully than other political groups did. And then you mentioned aircraft. Hitler was, as far as I know, the first German politician to campaign with an airplane. And he made a big point of that uh, in the last couple of free elections that he was campaigning in, Uh, particularly in 1932. He had a campaign plane and he flew around Germany with the slogan, Hitler over Germany, which obviously has a bit of a double meaning in it. But the idea of flying, you know, it sort of did two things for him. It cemented this image of the Nazis being modern and tech forward, not the sleepy old guys who were, you know, campaigning in a more conventional way. It also just physically allowed Hitler to cover more ground. He could fly from city to city. And so he could give speeches and rallies in a bunch of different cities much more effectively than a politician who's traveling, say, by train could do. Actually, that, uh, how about, I don't know if there's technology, but these huge crowds of Hitler in front of them, getting them all to the Sig Heil salute. I would guess that there is, you talked about Hitler's being able to, his radar with individuals. It sounds like he had that with crowds as well. Yeah, he absolutely did. And was it new to have crowds this big? Because I think, like, I would go back to ancient Rome, there'd be, like, the Colosseum, and there'd be big crowds there. But I was just reading about Lincoln, the Gettysburg Address, where, like, 20,000 people, much smaller. Yeah. And 
So is that new too? No, you know, interestingly, it's not really new. That actually would be one of the more, just the simple fact of speaking to a big crowd would have been one of the more traditional aspects of politics in those days. And in fact, you know, especially prior to World War One, politics had played a role as entertainment in a way that's hard for us to imagine today in the sense that people would often go to election speeches or election rallies the way now or in later times you might go to a movie or watch TV because there, when there weren't movies or TV, mm-hmm. politicians speaking were sort of the game. So in that sense, Hitler's working with a long historical continuity of having that kind of thing happening. I mean, I think probably what's a little different is Hitler was able to technologically augment what he's doing with those things in ways that other people were slower to grasp, like like using radio or like using phonograph records. This is another thing that the Nazis did, which was innovative. They would put Hitler's speeches on on, on phonograph records and, and distribute them that way. So you, you didn't even have to be at the rally. You could play it at home. You could play it over and over again if you wanted to. And so in those ways, they're able to kind of extend the reach of the fairly traditional kind of campaign rally public speaking event. All right. One other thing that I didn't I didn't see in your book is that but something that I find really big is the, the material conditions. In particular, Germany, all of the European powers are imperial powers. They're living unsustainably. They can't live on the materials, the resources within the boundaries. So they have to expand. Right. So there's the expansion of if you wanted Libus like elbow room, I guess. Yeah. But within, so they wanted to expand the boundaries of Germany. Yeah. But also they need to pull in minerals and rubber and oil from all over the world. How much did that play in? Because I feel like if you have two unsustainable countries, eventually they're going to have to compete with each other. Yeah. And it's, it's like inevitable. Right. Well, that, that's really interesting. That was, that was a very important element in Nazi thinking. I mean, in a way there were two models at that time for how an advanced industrial country could sort of deal with material conditions. You've got basically the the Great Britain model in which you have an overseas empire. And so you're drawing mostly raw materials from this far-flung overseas empire. Britain has not been self-sufficient in food since about 1800. They just they, uh, They couldn't grow enough food on the island of Great Britain to feed the population as it has expanded since 1800. So they rely critically on imports for food and then, of course, for other things, oil, et cetera. Now, Germany had a brief experience of an overseas empire in the decades before World War I, but then lost all of that in the peace settlement. And then for a while, the Germans, this is almost funny, the Germans became uh, in the late 20s kind of performative anti-imperialists on the idea that, well, if we can't have an empire, you can't either. So they, they used a lot of rhetoric directed against the British and French about how they should divest themselves of their colonies. But that wasn't Hitler. Hitler's thing, again, I find this almost bleakly funny. Hitler's thing, he regarded the British Empire as very typically liberal and capitalist. And Hitler's thinking, okay, that's what liberal capitalist states do. They have overseas empires. They have um, colonies in Africa or Asia. That's not the Nazi thing. We're going to do it differently. Our empire is going to be adjacent. We're going to have a land empire that is adjacent to us. So we're going to conquer Poland and the Soviet Union. That's basically where our empire is going to be. That's the Nazi way. You have a land empire that is contiguous. So I think it's interesting that he had this sort of political juxtaposition. What goes with this then too is that, and Hitler wrote about this and talked about this quite a bit, 
in terms of getting the resources you need as an industrial country, you can go the route of engaging in world trade, or you can be what's called autark autarkic. And autarky is an economic idea whereby you're getting all your resources from within your own borders. And here again, Hitler was sort of consistent. He thought engaging in world trade, that's the liberal capitalist thing. That's what the British do. That's not what we're going to do because we need to be able to really control it. So we are going to get all of our resources from within our own borders, which means our own borders need to be bigger. So we're, we're going to need to get, you know, grain from Ukraine and oil from Southern Russia. And so, you know, we'll need to expand to do that. And once we do that, we will be safe. We will be secure. We will be defensible against the liberal capitalist global trading empires like Britain. And he basically included the United States in that too. It seems that if you have to... So did he, did he believe that if he actually expanded just the right amount, then they would be sustainable? He probably believed that. And here we get into the thing of, of trying to know exactly what Hitler really believed and also when he really believed certain things is tricky because this is a guy who basically lied every time he opened his mouth. So it's, it's hard to pin him down. But it seems on the whole, it's consistent with a lot of what he said and it's consistent with his actions that he thought, uh, recent historians have stressed this particularly, that he really saw Britain and America as, as the major threats to Germany. And he was aware that Germany did not have the control of resources that they did. And so to be secure against them, he thought Germany needed to control an empire that would give it the resources, and that would basically mean the Soviet Union. A big part of the book that I'm writing is how once you start having surpluses, so going back to the agricultural revolution, which happened because of material changes in the world. I mean, the, the climate stabilized plants before 12,000 years ago, if you planted something and got it to grow, within your lifetime, it wouldn't work. The climate would have changed enough that it wouldn't work again. So you couldn't get agriculture. But then once you did, you started having these surpluses and these surpluses have to be defended. So you have to have, but then some people, so you got some people attack and some people defend. You're going to have a hierarchy, a dominance hierarchy. And the people at the top are going to have to stay, they're going to have to do what it takes to stay there because if they fall down after they've been depriving other people of stuff, I always think of the comparison of like, if the leaders, if the rulers of North Korea today said, let's make it a democracy, right? all the people in prison are going to be like, we're going to kill you. Yes. So we need some sort of, I would guess there has to be some sort of like witness protection program type thing. <laughs> yeah. So this sets up a situation where you, you have all these coming out of the Tigris and Euphrates or the, the Fertile Crescent coming out of the Indus Valley, I guess, and coming out of the Yangtze and the Yellow River. You're going to have these in the New World as well. You have these empires that have to grow and the people that have to do what it takes to stay or else they're going to die. And it feels like a lot of what led to imperialism and everything that imperialism led to colonialism and slavery, that it all followed from that. It's like water going downhill. We have to do, we have to really work hard to stop that. Things like the Magna Carta, the Declaration of Independence. And it feels like, what, so he was talking about them being imperialist and it feels like everyone is always like, well, we're never going to start the thing, but if, if we're attacked, we'll defend ourselves. And it seems like the, that, like that's how you start a war. Right. And with a pretense or something like that. And so I'm, I'm looking at this and, and seeing, you're talking about the machinations of the, of the different political actors and, and the industry and so forth. But it seems inevitable, and France and Germany, France and, and, and England and the U.S., we're all playing our parts. And, and for that matter, 
the racism and the anti—I guess the anti-Semitism is in the U.S. and in Germany, in England. Oh, absolutely. And we today look back and like them, Germany. That's who did it, right? But we are—we are not entitled to do that. It wasn't much different. And it seems like uh, that what I came across from uh, before it got to Jim Oaks, Eric, Eric, what's his name? The Trinidadian politician who's a historian uh, who's he said slavery. Racism didn't cause slavery. Slavery caused racism. Right. Through this mechanism, look, how do I resolve that? I think I'm a good person, but I'm hurting people. Yeah. And Eric Williams. And it feels like that's happening in like World War II, World War One. It's these things are in, in slavery, these things are inevitable consequences of I don't have enough. I need from over there, but the other people want that too. And so we have to fight. There have been movements against this to, to resist this, yep. like antitrust law and the Thirteenth Amendment. But it feels like, unless we, as long as we we require more than what we have, as long as it was we're living unsustainably, these conflicts are inevitable and they're going to get bigger. Right. The, the Nazis are okay. Right. And uh, the Nazis were quite conscious of this. I mean, and. The Nazis were quite conscious of wanting a standard of living, a material standard of living for Germans that probably wasn't sustainable. You know, it's worth keeping in mind that there's a, a really good economic historian named Adam Tews who, who's made this point quite a bit in recent years. It's sort of not the kind of stereotype of Nazi Germany, but we need to keep in mind that Germany was a significantly poorer country than Britain or America in the 30s. As a result of the reparations and... No, really, just as a result of its whole sort of economic development. It hadn't... I mean, it had... Germany had industrialized and it was a relatively prosperous country, yes, but it wasn't relatively prosperous and certainly not in terms of its average standard of living for most people. It wasn't anywhere near Britain or America. Adam Tews makes the argument, it's basically a middle-income country. It's kind of in a place like maybe Iran is today in terms of sort of per capita wealth. Mm -hmm. So the Nazis were very conscious of this, and they wanted to raise the standard of living to something more emulating Britain or America. And, you know, exactly to your point, they knew this couldn't be done in any peaceful way, or at least they, let me rephrase that, they they didn't think it could be done in any peaceful way. And so it required being strong enough to simply take resources and kill the people who would otherwise have used the resources. In that sense, the Nazis were more brutal and more consequential, or at least more blunt about their imperial project than the democratic imperial countries tended to be, who, you know, would cover their imperialism with high-minded talk about bringing development and whatever to the world, right? But the Nazis didn't bother with that rhetorical fig leaf. It's like, we're going to take this and kill you. Uh-huh. So it, it really was about, it really was about acquiring a material standard of living, which, you know, with our, I think, greater insight into how material standards of living living work uh, was unsustainable. And the other thing I would say is that, you know, I mean, human history seems to show over and over again, if I have the strength, if I have the, you know, weaponry, physical strength, whatever, to walk into your country and take your stuff, I probably will, mm-hmm. you know. And there will always be a minority in every country that will sort of oppose that. But the majority is probably going to go with, well, but if it means we have a better standard of living, we'll we'll take it. It's when conditions of material strength, military strength, and so on are relatively equal that it becomes harder to do that. But if you're much weaker than I am, and I can 
take your stuff. I'll probably take it. And then to your other point, I might feel a little uneasy about this. So I'll probably need, we were talking earlier about how people can always justify themselves to themselves no matter what they do. I think this is always true. Uh If I know you're weaker than I am, so I take your stuff and I feel slightly bad about this, I will justify it by saying, well, in some way, you're less worthy than I am. You're you're a subhuman. So really- Or I've helped you. uh, Right. Maybe maybe some or some combination thereof. I mean, but I'm entitled to your stuff. And maybe in return, I'll like help you reach my level. But I'm going to take your stuff. That's the main thing. And that's kind of what empire is. And, you know, I think it's exactly right. I've read a lot about this, that, you know, racism on the whole doesn't precede empire. It follows it, you know, um, especially like racism in its kind of modern form, uh, highly biologized racism that we started seeing in the last third or so of the 19th century. That's really a, a child of empire, not a cause of it. And the... There's also this feeling of, which is a lot today, if we don't, then they will. I mean, even if they're weaker than me, everyone feels like if we don't, then they will. And today with pollution, it's like, well, if we don't, China will, Russia will. They'll beat us in the market and then maybe militarily. So we have to. Even if we're stronger, we feel like, well, we feel weaker. We feel like we're defending ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, a lot of historians would say, I would say, it's a controversial topic, but I would say, that particularly in the run-up to World War I, this is what you see. Uh, you know, World War I was really a war of dueling empires. And it was really caused by imperial conflicts. It's really interesting. You look at the couple decades before World War I, and the great powers of Europe all had various conflicts with each other, but sort of not, for the most part, with each other in Europe. Their conflicts were overseas. And it's precisely this kind of thinking that empire is a zero-sum game. I don't really want... Madagascar, but if the French are going to have it, then I'm completely out of luck. So I guess I better get my bit of it, you know. And, and so there's this kind of race to control territory in a context in which, you know, Africans and Asians are militarily and economically much weaker than Europeans, so they're not able to withstand the European imperial drive. And you know, I'm sure you know this very well. That there's this mind-blowing expansion of European control of uh, overseas territory from about the 1870s on. I mean, empire just mushrooms. I, I like to show my students a map of Africa mm-hmm. in 1880 and in 1890, and the amount of territory that is controlled by Europeans, it's really minimal in 1880, and it's almost the whole continent in 1890. And that's a good sort of snapshot of just how fast empire grows in this situation where European powers feel it's a zero-sum game, and they need to grab the resources, and they have the strength to do it. Yes, and I'm thinking back about... Uh... I had a guy on uh, Kara Siddharth who studies Congo today and uh, cobalt, and it's like it hasn't changed. Like, yeah, it's changed in that it's not the nations doing it, but outside forces are still imposing themselves. I I, I kind of want to ask how different are we today than then? Because I feel like it's much less than we think. It's just not so nationalistic as much as it is um, corporate, although also nationalistic. Yeah. Okay, we today don't. We really believe a rising tide lifts all boats. We really believe we're we're helping them develop. Yes, and I think how different are those beliefs of ours today compared to the beliefs in in 1880 that led to taking over by 1890? Are we kidding ourselves that we're that we're like more enlightened now? I frankly think we are, for the most part, kidding ourselves. Yes, I mean, and if you look at this is. Sailing out of anything that I could call an area of expertise, but just as a citizen in the world, I think if you look at what Western capitalism 
what kinds of effects it has on a lot of countries in Asia or Africa. On the whole, it seems to me we're we're not contributing to a better life in those parts of the world. We're exploiting labor and exploiting resources, mostly for our own benefit. So that's not, I think, incredibly different from the 1880s. We believe that we are helping them, though. We may, some of us may believe that, yes. Yeah. Or we say it. I mean, that is- We certainly say it, yeah. It's a cultural belief that's un- that I believe yeah. unqu- that I see as unquestioned. Yeah. Because we call it developing nations. We Exactly. They deserve, we can't stop them from becoming like us. Right. So we have to, all right. So, okay, now we're outside of history, but I couldn't, <laughs> this is stuff that's on my mind all the time. And yeah. I wish that we could look at someone in 1880 who's going to, they're like, okay, we got to help these people in Africa by taking all their rubber and whatever. And see if you would have then, if you knew then what you know now, would you have tried to stop that? If so, try to stop it now. Yes. But I say that to people today and their response is, if we don't, then they will. If we, and you want to go back to the Stone Age. Yeah. It's just not, you know, Al Gore did that film 20 odd years ago, An Inconvenient Truth. It's inconvenient. It's not convenient for us to acknowledge how implicated we are in a lot of what are really imperial activities. So let's get to the Germans, the the average German. And I guess- Sure, let's go back to what I actually know about. (laughs) Well, I guess broadly, any imperialist place, but let's say Germany. Do we know about how the average German, uh, you know, someone who, they lived through World War I, maybe they have a son who might might be drafted, but maybe not. And so they're going throughout their day, they're paying their taxes, they're not Jewish. They're not Nazi. They're just a regular person trying to eke out a living and do the thing. And if someone says, so you have a Dietrich Bonhoeffer who's like, we must fight this. And he's got his, I forget the name of the church that he started. Like, and he, he's like pushing against Hitler at, at personal risk. There's people who are burning books and there's people who are Kristallnacht, but you're not one of them. Do we have their letters? Do we have are there troves of this? Are, are there books about this? Are there what's what do you know? So yeah, so there's a lot there. Um, there is a lot that we know. This has been, I think, one of the um, I like to say kind of growing tip areas of research on Nazi Germany in the last uh, decade or two. People have historians have become increasingly, I think, interested in what what we might call regular Germans thought and felt in these times. And there's been a lot of really good research on it. So there are a lot of things that we know. There are a lot of sources that we have. Some of them are wildly counterintuitive. The most wildly counterintuitive, and in some ways the most interesting, is reports prepared by the Nazis, uh, the Nazi party's own intelligence service, which was a thing called the SD, stands for Sicherheitsdienst or Security Service. There was a branch of the SS, which is a whole other thing. I won't I won't bore you or your listeners with the incredible organizational flowchart of that, but let's just suffice it to say the SD is the Nazi Party's intelligence service. And they had both a domestic and a foreign branch. One of the things the domestic branch did was compile reports on uh, popular opinion. Now, you couldn't do, you know, Gallup style opinion surveys in a dictatorship, of course, and they didn't. But what the SD would do was send out undercover agents to various places. They would, for instance, go into a working class bar, like undercover and get into conversations with people. Hmm, what do you think about this Hitler fellow, eh? Or, you know, how's the, why the war? I don't know if the war is going too well, like that kind of thing, and just see what people would say. And then they would write these um, very comprehensive reports. And you're writing this in a dictatorship, so when you read, and we have these reports, when you read the reports, it's always, you know, paragraph one is, you got to say this, everybody loves the Fuhrer and they're really loyal and blah, 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 blah. Then you get the bad news in the 
like next paragraph. And the bad news in these reports is usually really interesting. I mean, things like when they invade the Soviet Union in 1941, oh, people really aren't happy about this. They don't see the need for this at all. They're wondering what's going on. Is my son going to get killed over there? You know, I mean, so that's one interesting source we have on what ordinary Germans thought is what the Nazis themselves were trying to figure out. There's a kind of bookend to that, at least up until 1939. The Social Democratic Party in exile, after Hitler took power, the left of center Social Democrats had to either be arrested or leave. And they had an organization in Czechoslovakia from which they ran a kind of intelligence mission in Germany, gauging public opinion. And they wrote reports. They're called the Sopada reports. And we have them. They've all been published. And they too are confronting there's what they want to be true and there's what is true. And, and so they're interesting too, because they find the Nazis introduced a lot of policies, for instance, to make life better for working class people, paid vacations, which you know they had never had before, you know, trying to introduce more recreational activities in factories, stuff like that. And the Social Democrats in exile report sort of gritting their teeth. People really like this stuff. And, and you know, workers sometimes think, oh, Hitler's kind of okay. He's kind of okay for us. And it's good that we have jobs. And you know, the employment situation is better than before Hitler. And, and I'm, my wage is a bit higher. And, you know, so there's that. There's that body that we know. And then, as you indicated, there are all kinds of diaries and letters. There are whole archives in Germany of letters and, and diaries and stuff like that from the time. And lots of historians have been working through this in recent years. And all of this stuff you know, does give us something of a picture of what Germans thought. I, I guess one, one thing I feel I have to stress is, you know, I feel like ordinary German has to be in scare quotes because it's a really diverse country. I mean, no country is homogenous in any demographic way, and certainly Germany wasn't. It makes a big difference if you're from Bavaria or from the Prussian North. It makes a big difference if, if you're from the East or the West. It makes a difference if you're Catholic or Protestant. That's a big divide in Germany in those days. It makes a huge difference if you're working class or middle class. You know, of course, gender uh, makes a difference. All of these things. Of course, it makes a difference if you're Jewish. There were many Jews in Germany. People sometimes, I think, don't realize this or it seems surprising, but uh, the German Jewish population was under 1%. They're, they're a tiny, tiny, tiny minority. But of course, that 1% is really getting landed on by the regime. So all of these factors affect you know, what you're going to think about the regime. And so historians always have to sort of filter all information through is this a working class person? Is this a middle class person? A man, woman, Catholic, Protestant, you know, whatever. But with all that, there is a lot that we know about what people thought and how they experienced the regime. Are there books I could go to in English? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. My friend Peter Fritsche has written several that are, are great on this. I'm probably going to go blank on the title, but I'm happy to supply him later. Just look up Peter Fritsche. He's written a bunch that are, that are great. There's a collection there's a collection of letters and diaries. In German, it's called Ekolot. And I think it's been, I think some of those volumes have been translated. There is all kinds of stuff, yeah. Have you read them? Or, yeah. Oh, yeah. Is it? Okay. I did, I mentioned The Ruling Race, and then there's this other book I found called Pro-Slavery Thought in the Old South, in the Old South from 1935. And it's, I can't, I mean, the readers can't see this, but I'm like, I, I've just scrolled on my screen. Like the slaveholder argued that the free institutions had their only natural basis in slave society. Here arose one of the most important elements in slavery defense, the reconciliation of slavery with the principles of Republican liberty. That they would say slavery, democracy requires slavery. And they, you could see how they, that's almost a direct quote. I, I think it's in here somewhere. And you can see the mecca, like what's going on of them saying, how can I resolve 
that I'm doing something that is so hurtful, that's so against my... This is a quote that it's attributed to Abraham Lincoln, but he didn't say it, which is the most damaging thing you can do to yourself is to do something that you believe is wrong. Huh. Maybe he didn't say it, but it really applies. It's a nice line anyway. Yeah. And it's easy to look back and say, well, slavery is so wrong. Yeah. And But we can see how they turned it in their heads to be... You know, somewhere inside there's something denied and suppressed that says this is wrong. But the what they actually said to each other was, well, we have to educate them. We have to bring them up to our level. They're not quite human and, and whatever. Right. And we look back at that and call that evil. But the people doing it were sucked in by the same types of psychological um, contortion, uh, the, the same internal conflict that, I mean, that happens with us. So I think it's, uh, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. I think it's important to keep in mind, and again, your listeners may may find this somewhat surprising, but for the certainly for the first six years of Nazi Germany, from 33 to 39 until the war starts, and even into the first couple of years of World War II, if you weren't Jewish, Nazi Germany was a fairly pleasant place to live. In other words, what I mean is, I think we sort of have this image of living in a dictatorship that everybody all the time is terrified and feels oppressed and can't say what they want. And you're always afraid of the knock on the door of the secret police coming at 5 a.m. And and, all. and that wasn't the experience of the regime for the great majority of, of Germans. The regime aimed very much at Jews. In its first few years, it aimed at communist activists. And they were getting arrested and beaten and imprisoned and, and everything, and killed in some cases for sure. But there's no Holocaust yet. The Holocaust happens midway through World War II. So, and even for the first couple of years, even discrimination, legal discrimination against Jews is minimal. And then for anyone who's not Jewish, who's not a communist activist, the regime isn't aiming at you at all. And what people experience is a gradual rise in economic conditions. So the awareness of the regime doing bad things is fairly limited, and most people are experiencing, on the whole, good things from the regime. And so that element of sort of conflict, am I doing the right thing, am I complicit in a bad thing, that's very largely absent, because it's just really off the radar screen for most Germans. One thing that historians, I think, are, are struck by when they research this is that in any kind of surviving memory, in any contemporary documentation, or you know, if you're able to interview People looking back at that time, there's not so many anymore, but historians have done a lot of this. You find that anyone who was living in Germany in the 30s, especially if they were young, probably experienced it as a great time. Mm -hmm. You know, like I, I've seen interviews with, you know, by then older people reflecting on their teenage years in maybe the mid or late 30s. And you can tell they think, oh, it was great. You know, like I've ever seen this elderly lady interviewed once on a German TV show who's talking about being in one of the Nazi youth organizations, the League of German Girls, and going on a sort of camping expedition with the, the boys in the Hitler Youth. And she gets this look in her eyes and she, she says, well, you have these great looking boys in their Hitler Youth uniforms. And you can tell she's thinking about these great days of her youth. There's nothing about, oh, we were terrified and terrible things were happening. None of that for that. Now, about midway through World War II, the war starts going very badly for Germany, of course. And particularly after the uh, German defeat at the very decisive Battle of Stalingrad, the regime starts to become massively more repressive on its own people. And that's a real shift. 
from late 42, early 43 until the end of the war, now the regime really is kind of landing on its own people. And it becomes a much more oppressive place for all Germans to live. But that's coming fairly late in the history of the regime. So there's a lot of the history of the regime. And by the way, the Holocaust was practically over by then in practice. So like the whole history of the regime is, is kind of Germans had a, an experience of it that in some ways to us is counterintuitive. When you say that their, their general experience is like, oh, things are pretty good. And it's sort of in the back of our minds. Minds. Now, you mentioned Jews and you mentioned communists. I felt like in your book, you said the, like Dachau was the first concentration camp. And I felt like it was intelligentsia who got sent there, like reporters and yeah, to an extent. professors. Yeah, intelligentsia. Like, if you would get sent to Dachau in '33 if you were identified as an anti-Nazi political activist. And that, so that tended to be intelligence. It tended to be, uh, you know, liberal or left-leaning lawyers, you know, artists, intellectuals, and communist activists. Those are the big categories who are there. You wouldn't be sent, and it is important to stress for your listeners too, that a concentration camp is actually a different thing from a death camp. When we talk about the concentration camps in Germany, we don't mean places where people are being sent just to be murdered in large numbers the way they were sent to the death camps later uh, from 1941 on, places like Auschwitz or Treblinka, those are places where basically, well, actually slight asterisk on Auschwitz, but the Treblinka, you're only going to get sent to Treblinka to get killed quickly. That's the only reason you get sent there. But Dachau, built much earlier, you would get sent, Dachau was like a tough jail, basically. You'd get sent there if you're a political opponent. They would rough you up for a while, make you do hard labor, and then probably let you go after a few months if you promise to never talk about what happened to you there. That was what was happening in the earlier years. It, it, it's a tough jail, and the people who went there were Nazi opponents. You wouldn't get sent to a camp at all just for being Jewish until sort of minimally 35, when they introduced a law that made it a criminal offense for sexual relations uh, between uh, what the regime defined as a Jewish and a non-Jewish person. And then if, if you got convicted of that and you're Jewish, then you would get sent to a camp. And then you're kind of being sent to a camp because you're Jewish. But even so, it takes a long time to get to the Holocaust as we picture it, as a situation in which if you're identified as Jewish, you're being sent to a camp and killed. That, that's not happening until uh, late 41. Nazi Germany didn't make up concentration camps, I believe. No. They existed in Africa. They yes. existed and, and they continued to exist after World War II. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They, uh, the concentration camp is really born in the 1890s. The first use of the German concept actually comes in the war in Cuba against the Spanish in, in the 1890s. The British pick it up in South Africa in the Boer War in, between 1899 and 1902. The Russian Bolsheviks start using them after their revolution. They, they actually take the word and kind of just put it into uh, Russian. And then it sort of develops. And then the Nazis sort of pick it up from there. So there's quite a lot of historical evolution before we get to the Nazis. And how about after World War II? And after World War II, well, I, I mean, super ironically, some of the Nazi concentration camps, if they were in what became the Russian zone of occupation of Germany after World War II, just simply get repurposed by the Russians. And then they start putting their opponents, which mostly means German military officers or ex-Nazis, they put them in the camps and keep running them as camps. You know, the Russian gulag, Soviet gulag, is really a concentration camp system, and that goes well into the 50s. So yeah, it's a, some people, some historians have said the concentration camp is actually kind of the, I don't know, ultimate symbol of 20th century history. I think also England and Africa, wasn't there, there's some rebellion that I think might escape me. Okay, so these people who are, the, the things are going pretty well. Kind of over there, I know that someone's being oppressed, but I don't want to think about that. That sounds to me 
like someone drinking plantation produced tea sweetened with plantation produced sugar in England in 1800. They could have known. Yes. Or it, it reminds me of me. All right. So I haven't flown since 2016. And I was watching this, this a professor, a physics professor speak. And he said that flying, he's British. So he said London, LA round trip yeah. is rough, warms the globe roughly a year's worth of driving, which was way more than I thought. Wow. And that led me to lose sleep, to let that to go for one year without flying, to see if I could do it, what would happen. Yeah. And that's a whole other story. But when I look back, I I knew I thought all right, flying like you, you're kind of surprised. Oh, that's more than I thought. Yeah. I thought so too. And then I also thought I could have looked this up a long time ago. I kind of knew I didn't want to find out what I wanted what I would find out. Like I knew it was more than I thought, but I could I, I had willful ignorance. Right. And that's what I'm seeing then. In is that what was going on in Germany? I think that's a really good comparison, actually. And I, I should have come quick. I flew yesterday. <laughs> my uh, my family and my wife's family live in Alberta, Canada, two thousand odd miles from where I live in New York City. So I just flew back from Christmas from Edmonton, Alberta, to New York. So my hands are thoroughly dirty on that one. So yes, I think it's a fairly good analogy because I think in the earlier years of Nazi Germany, it is like that. There is oppression. It's hitting a minority. In other respects, the society, or it's hitting several minorities, basically Jews and communists are the main ones. In other respects, the society is becoming a bit more prosperous. It's recovering from the crisis of the Great Depression of, of the early 1930s. You know, and then Hitler starts achieving what look to most Germans like uh, diplomatic successes with the, as it's called, the Anschluss or the annexation of Austria. And then taking the uh, the German-speaking regions of Czechoslovakia, the Sudetenland in 1938, one prominent historian has said that if Hitler had died somehow in late 1938, after he had incorporated Austria and the German-speaking regions of Czechoslovakia into Germany, if he had died then, uh, many Germans re would remember him today as the greatest statesman in German history, full stop, uh, because he would have made Germany great again, re re you know, revived its economy uh, revived its kind of political and, and diplomatic status, brought a unification of German-speaking people that hadn't happened before because the Germany that was unified in 1871 had actually excluded very large uh, German communities outside of the Bismarckian uh, German Empire. So he would be seen as this great statesman. People would forget his what anti-Jewish uh, legislation there had been up to that point. They would forget the concentration camps. They would just remember these achievements. And so this historian says, I hope he says it ironically, though I'm not sure. He says, you know, just a few months separated that from what he became. Because then, you know, then the war, World War II starts. Mm -hmm. And then it's in World War II, to come back to something you were saying at the outset, that Hitler really becomes the Hitler that we know. And, and the Nazi regime really becomes the Nazi regime that we think of with its full range of horrors and, and crimes. And, you know, if Hitler just died before that, people wouldn't have experienced that. It wouldn't have happened. And they would just experience the things that Hitler did that most Germans saw as positive. If you're looking at people being the main drivers of everything, that would be the case. But if if material conditions are forcing this conflict, then whoever comes in afterward, the conflict is going to happen unless the people start living within their means sustainably. Yeah, you know that this is actually an interesting case. Historians kind of break down in terms of do they see individual humans, particularly leaders, as the decisive agents in history, or do they see material or social conditions as the decisive agents? And most historians 
would be somewhere between those extremes. But I think when it comes to Nazi Germany, just about all historians would say, if you take Hitler out of the picture, you don't get World War II or the Holocaust. Whatever else was happening, whatever other structural or material conditions might have driven events, they would not have driven events to anything that looks like World War II or the Holocaust. This is one case, there aren't many in history, I think, but this is one case where if you don't have that one guy, Mm -hmm. you're not going to get these really big things. So Hitler, I mean, his talent for reading people and manipulating people, his not thinking twice about lying about whatever, and then this massive growth of hating Jews that... I mean, I, I think someone in your book, you said, everyone agrees that they're like the worst. There's nothing redeeming about them, even Stalin. Yeah. And I was like, I never thought of making that comparison of like, oh, Stalin had, had something redeeming? Well, I personally probably wouldn't say so, but but there have always been historians who have been willing to say that there are redeeming features for Stalin. Some of his major biographers have said, yeah, but look, if he hadn't developed a collectivized agriculture and you know, trained a whole lot of Soviet people to drive tanks, where would you, or to drive uh, farm uh, combines, where would you have gotten your tank drivers in World War II? Where would you have gotten the industry that enabled the Soviets to withstand the Germans in World War II? That, this kind of thing. So, and at any rate, there isn't the taboo in our society of saying there's a redeeming feature about Stalin. Like, I could go and say that in public, mm-hmm. and I probably would not be, you know, dropped by all my friends and, you know, every publisher and discipline at my job or something. If I go out and say, there are really redeeming features to Hitler, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. Like That's a taboo, right? So like Hitler as an individual figure in history, and I think his regime in general, are about the only regime, I think, in human history where there's this absolutely unambiguous kind of taboo, that there's nothing redeeming about this. You cannot respectably attempt to justify it. For up to me, I would add in Stalin's Soviet Union to that, Mm -hmm. but you know, that's just me. And yet people in, I mean, the average German in the 30s is like, hey, this guy, like, I imagine those rallies were fun. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. I mean, they must have been like, yeah, we're all together. And now, like, I'm doing the little Heil salute thing. And it must have been a blast. I I have no doubt it was a blast. And there was a real feeling, you know, one thing that I think almost all historians agree on is that, you know, Hitler wasn't really... It was by no means universally popular with Germans when he came into office. I mean, the best his party ever did in free elections was about a third of the vote. So it's worth keeping that in mind. But once he comes in, there's a kind of honeymoon that he has. And there's partly a benefit of incumbency and then partly a sense that once he's in, he is bringing change and energetic, you know, change. And there is a feeling that if you look at the spring of 1933, when Hitler's sort of newly in office, there is a kind of swelling of support for him mixed with a kind of enthusiastic patriotism and like, oh, Germany's on the move again. Mm-hmm. And I think that was probably, that was widely shared and certainly widely shared by people who would not otherwise have shared his ideological priorities. And, you know, I, I'm sure it would have been exciting for people at the time, probably especially for young people to be sort of part of that movement. We have to be very careful having fun in our movements today. Absolutely. Yeah. Pick the movement carefully that you're having fun with. But again, you know, I mean, I don't want to necessarily, I'm not trying to defend Nazis. I'm reasonably confident that if I'd been around then, I would have been an opponent of Hitler. But that said, I think as students trying to understand what happened in the past, 
we do need to remember that all of the things that we consider to be most definitively important about Hitler not only hadn't happened yet, but were pretty close to unimaginable for most people. And again, there's no template really, or in most people's minds today, right? There's no template for genocide. The concept doesn't exist. You know, no one has any idea that this is coming. No one really has any idea that something like World War II is coming. At least that's not what Germans are voting for, that we can be pretty sure about that. We know that Germans, the vast majority of public opinion in Germany opposed getting into a war. It's well attested that when the war came in 1939, the gloom in Germany was really palpable. But, you know, oh my God, this is happening again. So today, it seems there are pretty clear predictions of what could happen if we keep living unsustainably. We're sleepwalking into it. Yeah. Is it more clear? Uh, some people will dispute the science or the, the predictions, but it seems, is it more clear what's looming for us than what was looming for them, I guess, it would be different in 30, 33, 35, yes. 40. Yeah. You know, I think you're right to sort of break it down like that because as the years go by, it starts to become, I think, more conceivable what Hitler is bringing. But to your point, yes, I think I think there's no doubt. I mean, we are sleepwalking into a disaster, but we ought not to be. It's less excusable. I think we should have a much better idea of what's coming. We get told every day, I think. We see it in our daily life every day, the signs of what's coming. We see, you know, Last year, all the horrible forest fires and the, the smoke that was here, the the droughts, oh, yeah. you know, the weird... Well, I, you know, so I was just in Alberta, Canada, where I grew up, where when I was a kid, at Christmas time, it might be 20 degrees below zero with a few feet of snow. And right now, there's just about no snow, and it was right around the freezing mark. That's freakishly warm mm -hmm. for there at that time, and no snow in Alberta in the, uh, at Christmas time. That's really bizarre. So, you know, there's palpable evidence of, of what we're doing all around us that we should be seeing and acting on. And not to pick on you in particular, but you're going to visit there again next Christmas, right? Yeah. And you're going to fly, you're not going to ride your bike there. Nope. And we're all, <laughs> it's, I mean, to me, the parallels are deeply uncomfortable, but obvious. I mean, undeniable. Yeah. That it's, we're sleepwalking into it and we can act differently, but we really have just, we, our minds are so twisted up into, but I'm not a bad person. Yeah. So, okay. So, pardon me. My next step is to follow up with the books that you talked about because I want to, I don't want to, it's dangerous to go out and say, oh, you're like a Nazi. I'm not saying that about anyone, but there were non-Nazis who could have done things. Yes. And that's what we could do. I, the last thing I want to ask is, um, so you said the death of democracy. So, it's not about Hitler. And it feels to me the big problem with dictatorship is that no matter how much you like the dictator at the time, you can't stop them when things switch. Right. And it seems like, and it's inevitable, No, as far as I can tell, no two people agree on all values. Right. Inevitably, the dictator is going to differ with the majority. Unless the person dies early. But if they keep amassing power, eventually they're going to go in a direction you don't like and you can't do anything about it and you're going to go down with them. That's why, that's like what I think about the, of dictatorship. Yeah. I mean, that historically, that always seems to be the case. Sooner or later, every dictatorship runs into trouble. You know, it's interesting. A dictator's power has to come from somewhere. I mean, no dictator is a dictator just because he, it's usually he, he has 
some mixture of extraordinary qualities or power. That, that dictator's power depends on something in their society. It's usually military force, you know, police power. Uh, it could be economic power if the dictator is tied to key economic interests. Something is sustaining that dictator. So dictators always then sort of play ball. I mean, there is a there is a politics that happens in dictatorships of the dictator making concessions, usually to the powerful entities that are sustaining him. And usually a dictatorship can last as long as that relationship holds. I mean, when a dictatorship is really in trouble is when some aspect of that relationship breaks down, right? Like, for instance, Hitler, the one group that could have and tried to move Hitler out of power was the military. Like, they were the ones who had control of force and had access to him that, uh, that they could do that. Amazingly, Germany's incredibly skillful professional soldiers turned out to be really bad at uh, coup attempts. <laughs> so they tried num- numerous times to kill him and they failed numerous times. But that's a sort of example of like when that relationship between a dictator and one of his bases of power breaks down, then the dictator is in trouble. As long as that relationship is okay, the dictator is probably going to be okay. Well, I think, so I came across this idea that the source of a, of a, um, of a dominance hierarchy is control of a resource, a necessary resource with no alternative. Yeah. So if that goes away, then the then the dictatorship's going to go away. Yeah. Right. And as long as that's there, they're going the game theoretical part. Like they, they they have to keep it. They have to keep maintaining it. Yes. Yes. And that to me is like so once I pick that up, everything makes sense. Like a lot of stuff makes sense. Yeah. The communist dictatorships of Eastern Europe fell apart uh, in large part when the sort of economic bargain between people in dictatorship broke down. The, the, the dictatorships weren't able to maintain even a barely tolerable standard of living. And and at the same time, the force that maintained them was basically withdrawn when Mikhail Gorbachev and the Soviet Union indicated that the Soviets wouldn't send tanks to prop up you know, Poland or East Germany anymore. And you get these two things combining, and then the dictatorships evaporate incredibly quickly, actually, historically. You know, so again, it's a it's an indication of what sustains the dictatorship and what doesn't. Well, this has been fascinating to me. My next step is to follow up with the books that you mentioned. Okay, is there anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up? Or oh, I think we could easily talk for like six more hours, but uh, I I don't know if your listeners could necessarily sustain all of that. I might come back after reading those books, but thank you very much. Oh, thank you. It's really been a pleasure, Josh. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.